Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from On Shamit Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Lech Lecha, Lot, the Bible's first hostage. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Rabbi. You are a biographer and you are a historian. So here's a question that I, I think about quite often. Does history repeat itself? You know, Mark Twain said it rhymed, although some people say it wasn't Twain who said that. Somebody, maybe it was somebody who rhymed with Twain who said it. I, I don't think history repeats itself or rhymes. I think history just continues to live within us. And I think that um, we make a mistake when we think of history being in the past. History is all around us and it's affecting our lives and it's uh, it's a part of the future. So I think we, we need to stop thinking of history as a dot on this timeline and think of it as a line that runs from the past through the present and into the future. How's that? So if I I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're taking a much more organic understanding of history, that that instead of the chart that we grew up with, you know, this period, this period, this period, this period, actually they are all influencing one another. And we're, we're in the midst of it. Right. This sentence that I'm saying to you now just became the past. And that sentence that's now in the past um, is created by the fact that I was born where I was born, who I was born to, who my parents were, the fact that I'm Jewish, uh, the fact that my ancestors came from Eastern Europe. All, all of that is formed by my past. And um, and the next thing I'm about to say will also be formed by my past. So I just think I've learned to think of it as a through line. That's a very interesting approach to this. It's almost that history is a DNA that um, is continually making its presence known. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, you know, I love playing these games like what if America had not fought for independence from Britain? Would the Native Americans be better off today? Would we be less divided as a country? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Like those are those are fun hypothetical questions, but they're real because there was a choice made at one point. And, um, you know. History uh, has affected the outcome, uh, the fact that we are who we are today because of those choices we made. There's a rabbinic concept, masse avot siman levanim, that the actions, the experiences of our patriarchs uh, and matriarchs are repeated throughout Jewish history. In other words, we Jews are always living in our own reality, but also living in experiences of the past as well. And I think it probably fits well into into your understanding. It's not exactly as if they're repeating themselves exactly, but there's a resonance that we live with all the time. Yeah, and aren't we uh, living with the Torah? Um, as, as Isn't that an example of the past uh, threading through our lives, literally, you know, sort of uh, wound into our DNA? I think I can retire now. This is what I've been waiting for for low <laughs> these many years. You finally got me. This is the goal to see Torah as a kind of a living document. And speaking of Torah, this week's Parsha is the beginning of Jewish history. Abraham is called and Abraham responds. And he and Sarah leave everything they know and they follow God, all for a promise that is largely based in the future and that Abraham and Sarah will never live to see. But they go with God, if you will. They enter the covenant 
and, you know, the rest is Jewish history. But what's fascinating is that in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham gets the call. In chapter 14, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is taken as a hostage. And so, in a very chilling way, this kind of organic history continues to rear its head, if you will, to put it in the Aegean uh, construct. Yeah, um, I guess it gets back to the question of his history repeating itself. Is it rhyming or is it just always the same? You know, are we are we living through the same problems over and over again? And I think that the problem is that we're, we're you know, humans don't change fundamentally and uh, we make the same mistakes. We, we have the same grievances. We, we fight the same wars over and over again. And that's frustrating. I'd like to think that we are we're getting better, but sometimes like uh, the world we're living in right now, I have my doubts. Right. We take one step forward, two steps back all the time, and we're constantly being reminded, and this, again, I'll take this from the Torah, that there is a very fine line between human beings and the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. And we are constantly struggling as to which side we're on. And certainly in the past few weeks, we have seen the worst of humanity. We've seen the ugliness in ways that I think none of us could imagine. And those of us who study the Holocaust and those of us who have family who experienced the Holocaust thought never again meant never again until it does happen again. And there we have this visceral response. And I think Jews are having this visceral response to what happened on October 7th because it's part of our DNA. To Going back to what you said, it's part of that kind of um, organic sense that we can't escape our own history. And here you have Lot being taken. Now, why is he taken? Well, first of all, and this is, and this will have resonance throughout Jewish history, we tend to see Abraham based upon films as a sort of wandering nomad. But actually, Abraham was a person of means, and Abraham had his own militia. He had his own army. He was, um, he was a very powerful chieftain, if you will, in that age. Now, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is problematic. We've already seen how problematic he is. He can't, his shepherds don't, don't go get along with Abraham's shepherds. They have to separate. And yet, in this moment in time, what does Abraham do? Does Abraham send in a negotiation team? No. Does he wait for the ransom note to show up? No. He simply sends a, his own special forces or whatever you want to call it. And they go and they defeat the enemy and they extract him. They take Lot back. Not only do they take Lot back, but they also bring back all of the loot, all of the, the, the booty that was taken in all of this, and they return it to the other kings in the area. And they want to pay Abraham back. They want to give him a reward. Wow, you brought everything back. This is amazing. And Abraham won't take anything. He won't take anything from them as if to say, I didn't do this for the financial a reward of it. I did it to save my nephew. I did it because I value human life. Now it doesn't say that, but it is a um, it, it it is a tenable approach to the text. And I'm wondering, as you're hearing this, how you're responding, Jonathan. Well, I guess I'm responding that you know Abraham acted out of love, acted you know out of passion. He didn't think about what was the safest thing to do, what was the um, 
practical thing to do, what was going to um, cause him the least political damage. Um, he just, it sounds like he acted on his instinct, which is completely understandable. And I'm not sure what the modern application is today, except, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of debate now over, over how Israel should respond to this egregious and almost completely unthinkable attack. But, um, well, know, how do you respond morally? And there's a lot of discussion now about, you know, Israel must respond, but it must respond morally, right? How do you do that? War is immoral to begin with. So it's, it's stressful to me. Yes, it is. And these are impossible days. But what I want to point out to you is that Abraham responded from a position of power. How do people in power respond? And if you don't respond, if let's say that Abraham had gone and negotiated with uh, the captors and then paid the ransom and took his, his nephew back. What does that say about Abraham in that part of the world? That he is a moral figure, that he doesn't like bloodshed, that he um, was willing to pay any price for his, uh, his nephew? But does it also make him more vulnerable to other hostage takers? So throughout Jewish history, when Jews did not have power, but they had attained a certain status, certain wealth, they were very, very vulnerable to hostage takers. There could be pirates, there could be lots of things. And communities would often pay exorbitant amounts of money to get a hostage back. Pidyon shvuyim, to the rescue of the captives. This is actually a whole halachic issue of how much can you pay and what can a town do? Can it stop the building of a school, in other words, to then uh, rescue the hostage? What are the limits? How do we do that? It's a really interesting, really tragic story, but it has plagued the Jewish community throughout the diaspora. In other words, what do you do when you have power? What do you do when you are powerless? How do you manage that? This has been a constant issue. Now, if Jews have gone back, they have their own land. It's based upon the ethos that we have to be in a place where we can defend ourselves. And yet, in the last few years, Israel was willing to give a thousand prisoners, many of whom had terrorist pass, back to Hamas for Gilad Shalit, one Israeli. And at that time, this was a huge controversy in Israel, huge. There were people, you know, the, the Shalit family had never given up on their son. They had an international campaign. Israelis thought about this all the time, and they were willing to pay the price of Hamas. And then there were people at the time who said, well, don't do it. This is a terrible precedent you're setting. And now there are well over 200 hostages in Gaza. What is Israel supposed to do? How do you manage your power in a moment like this? I think this is exactly what you were saying and exactly the the issue and it is sort of a gordian knot how do you manage this well and and this is not to speak about israel specifically but in, it is always a gordian knot because it's of course it's it seems like it's better to have power than to be in a disadvantaged situation and to have less power than those around you but then the fight for power becomes all-consuming and it and it changes your moral values and it becomes a a race to who can have the more weapons. And that's how we get the, this military-industrial complex. And then there's a feeling that if you have power, you have to use it. 
Um, I wish I had um, a ready answer. What I think we could say, you asked about what the Torah says. The Torah sees war as a, an unfortunate reality of human society. It talks about just wars. It talks about what goes into a just war. It talks about how you negotiate with the people that you are fighting. And if you can't negotiate with them, then you go into war. But there are values that you try to um, maintain. This is a war that has been foisted on Israel. Um, I know that there are people out there that say that, especially um, the protesters who are, who are standing with Hamas and um, uh, to a certain extent, at least by bearing Palestinian flags are standing with Palestinians. But the reality is, is that this moment in time to protest is to stand, if this is from my opinion, you're standing with Hamas. The reality is, is that we are dealing with an enemy that does not value human life in the way that Jews value human life. And that has been shown in, in the horrific, horrific actions of October 7th. We have the manuals, we understand that. And now they have hostages. And Israel is not in a good position. But no country in the world would allow an entity on its border, which has vowed to hurt and destroy Jews and Israelis, to function. I think that we're seeing how the reality of America and all of this and the relationship between the United States and Israel at this time is affecting Israel's decisions to go in. We don't actually know what's going to happen. I think Israel is trying to manage the humanitarian situation, but doesn't exactly have a lot of good options because Hamas isn't giving them options. Um, and I don't think the world, I think the world uh, will tire very quickly of Israel's logic here. Uh, and that makes it that much harder. I don't want to end on a dismal note, but the Torah shows Abraham in a position where he could act in a clear-cut way. What would have happened if Lot would have died in this battle? What would have happened then? How would we remember that? Morally, it's an easier issue because Abraham, you know, the kind of the swashbuckling nomadic chieftain was able to bring everyone back and defeat the enemy. It feels like the 67 war. The enemy is better. It's smarter. It's better trained. And Iran is um, the, great, uh, the great puppeteer. So stay tuned and we'll see how it happens. But I don't believe for a moment that Israel does not value human life. I believe they are doing everything possible to both fight the enemy and care for people. But it remains just a horrible challenge. Yeah, it does. And I think um, we could go on and on about this, but to get back to where we began, you know, what does history teach us about this? What does the Torah teach us about it? It teaches us that um, enemies are, are always out there, and they know how we're going to respond. They know how their, their enemies are going to respond, and it escalates. And in this case, I think that escalation is intentional, they, that chaos is being sown for a reason, that um, it's a destabilization of a situation that they wanted to destabilize, and and we just – we're – we're living with the, that chaos now and will be for a long time. I guess I would kind of come back to what you were talking about in history. Much of Jewish history was for Jews about being powerless. Mm -hmm. How do we respond to the world when we actually have power? 
What does that mean? What are the responsibilities of that power? How do you wield that power? And especially when there are weaker elements amongst you, how do you manage all of that? This is the challenge of the moment. And I hope and pray that Israel will uh, not only do what needs to be done to protect the Jewish state, as any country would do, but I hope they do it in a Jewish way. That's my hope and prayer and my confidence as well. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Thank you, Rabbi.